This is the CRO Gumbo Podcast by Christian Louvier. What's poppin' CROs? My name is Christian Louvier, host of CRO Gumbo Podcast. I'm joined today by Chris Palmozano, who is COO and CRO. And I believe, are you also a co-founder, Chris Palmozano? Uh, yeah, so I was very early into the business. Uh, initially, I was an investor in the company and then came on board uh, as a board member. Uh, and then after a few months, uh, joined operationally as the CRO and the uh, COO, so head of sales and ops. There, um, so I guess well, I'm, I want you to go back, go into your background. But uh, while I have you on the COO CRO title, can you talk a little bit about how those two uh, cross over? I, th- I think a lot of CROs do cross this over unofficially, uh, but you're the first that I've seen that has the title. Yeah, so we talked about this early on at Rocket Dollar, and part of this was we weren't yet sure all of whom we were going to be communicating with. And so to make it abundantly clear to people what roles people were playing, we tried to be very specific. And if we had to give people two titles, well, then we gave them two titles. Uh, because some of this is changing, right? Uh, a chief revenue officer today might be responsible for marketing or might not. They might be responsible for customer support or customer success. Um, you, we used to call these roles SVP of sales and ops or sales and support. You would sometimes see SVPs of sales and marketing. Um, so to make it clear... Like I've got responsibility for the revenue generating function and the support or operations team. Um, And uh, at some point uh, we decided to roll marketing up through there too. And so I I think people should use a title that best describes what their, what their responsibilities are. Got it. Um, And, and Chris, what uh, you guys are based in Austin, Texas. What is the, uh, the high level on what rocket dollar is trying to solve in the market? Yeah, sure. So there is a niche, and I call it a niche in financial services for self-directed retirement investing. Self-directed means that you uh, are able to make decisions about what you want to invest in. So Rocket Dollar makes it really simple for you to invest in alternative assets with a retirement account. So think IRA or 401k. And then when I say alternatives, typically that's real estate or private equity, private companies, startups. Those are the things people come to us primarily for, but we see other exotic investments too. Uh, People now want to look at crypto, uh, we sometimes put precious metals. Uh, the litany of what you can invest in is actually really long. There's only a couple things the IRS says you cannot. Um, but most people, when they have a 401k or an IRA or a retirement account, you typically can only invest in things that the broker makes available to you on their platform. So mm-hmm. we're, trying to, uh, we're trying to shake that up a little bit. And so this has been around. This has been a concept. You've been able to self-direct your own investments since the late 70s. Um, and we're now trying to put a modern spin on that to build a tech platform that makes this process really easy, makes the facilitation easy, and gives people uh, choice and the ability to invest in some cases in what they know. So we meet – there are millions of real estate developers and real estate professionals in America. Mm-hmm. They have the ability to invest in real estate in their retirement account. Um, so that's just an example of uh, one of the audiences that we serve. And Chris, are you, is Rocket Dollar primarily trying to hit like institutional investors, like replace the Fidelity 401k that might be at like, a, I don't know, Delta Airlines or something like that? Or are you going after the, the end consumer? Yeah, great question. So the 401k product that we, act, that we offer is actually called a uh, solo 401k. So this is for the sole proprietor or uh, someone who owns their own business. It can the owners of the business can have a business in any entity type. So it could be, in, you know, an LLC or an S corp or a C. Got it. Okay. The thing is that you don't have any full-time employees besides the owner and the spouse. So we do not, we are not in the group 401k market. So like if you came to me and said, Hey, I've got five employees, 
I want to set up a plan for the CRO gumbo or maybe your parent company. I would send you to someone else who specializes in small business 401k plans. That's not our market. We are going after the individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually why we have that product is because structurally a one person 401k plan is actually very similar to an IRA. Got it. Okay. Makes sense. Um, so Chris, I want to go a little bit into your background now. So can you give me uh, kind of the the two minute bio? I know you've got a a long uh, history with a lot of the investments and just the way the, the way that you came up through Google and things like that. Sure. Yeah. So I started out actually as a military officer after nine 11, I spent five years full time in the service and then made a transition into the private sector. I worked in healthcare, like building some technology, managing, managing some products. Um, and then uh, I went to business school and in the back end landed at Google, Google moved me to Austin. Uh, and I had a number of management positions in operations and sales uh, early in the cloud business when Google decided to go, head-to-head with Amazon and uh, Microsoft. Um, And then uh, from there, joined uh, an Austin-based company. And since then, I've been working uh, in Austin-based companies in tech or, uh, in some cases, startups. And then, uh, frankly, um, uh, got linked up with the the team that became the founding team for Rocket Dollar. Um, And I have a personal story here. The products that Rocket Dollar offers, which we've already mentioned, these individual 401k and IRAs, uh, so I set one of these up for, uh, for my wife um, when she got her first business off the ground. So I had learned how these things operate. Um, and frankly, <laughs> how, how, wait, wait, how did you get, how did you get, she just like came to you and said, I need to do this. Or you just wanted a good challenge. Well, I mean, between the two of us, right? Like she was starting a business and I thought, well, I work for a big company. Mm-hmm. So I have all these like, you know, wealth building at the time I was working for a big company. So I said, I have all these wealth building opportunities or these retirement accounts, et cetera. What do you have if you're self-employed? What do you have if you're a one-person business and you're just trying to get something off the ground? Nobody wants to talk to you. Nobody right, right. That's that's why I was wondering. <laughs> so not even like the not even the 22-year-old banker at the corner in your uh, in your community bank. Nobody wants to talk to you. Mm-hmm. So we thought, well, what do you do? Where, where's your 401k plan? Uh, and I started calling around, and like a good sales guy, I, you know, I found somebody that was. Um, I was banging on the phones and found a lawyer who introduced me to the concept of a, a universal or what they call a uni K, uh, which is a uni K, solo K, individual 401k. They all mean the same thing. Uh, and one thing led to another. And so we created a plan. We opened a plan and then I became the trustee over it and I managed it. And we, and we still have it today. And so it's made, frankly, all the difference in the world for us because there's all kinds of tax benefits. Um, plus, it allows you to save for your own retirement, which is a responsible thing to do. Um, but I understood how these products works. I, uh, products work. I also understood how they were sold and how they were marketed. Um, most of this little corner of the industry is all, it, it's very paper-based. It's very manual. Uh, it's kind of stuck in the past. So it became an opportunity for us. And then the CEO of the company, Henry Yoshida, um, has been in financial services forever uh, and is a, something of a thought leader like nationally on this topic. Um, and some of the other team members uh, had backgrounds in fintech or in financial services. And so essentially we all came together and said, let's build something cool and let's build something that's really helpful for people. Uh, so that's what we're doing. Got it. And I want to jump back to your origin story a bit, Chris. So you said you moved to Austin. Where are you originally from? So I grew up in uh, Western New York, actually. Okay. Um, and then, so you moved to Austin for Google. Is that where the job was? Yeah, that's where the job was. So actually, I accepted. It's a funny story. I accepted an offer to move to California. I was going to go work in, in the Valley, in Mountain View. And then right before I was set to move, 
the group that had hired me asked me if I'd consider coming to Austin. Uh, and I said, well, yeah, let's give it a shot. So I came and checked out Austin. We decided we'd come here. And I thought, well, if I ever want to go work at headquarters, that seems like an easy transition to make. And indeed it is. But once we got here, you know, we got settled and I you know, gave a, I stayed there a good four and a half years or so. And then uh, decided that we liked it here. And so we'd try to make a, make a life here. And so I decided to stay here. And that's when I went out and joined an Austin company. Got it. And we are, uh, what, uh, we're doing this interview about a week after nine 11, you said you, you joined, um, the military after nine 11 was nine 11, the, the catalyst to that, or you already knew you wanted to go into the military. Yeah, no. So I was already promised to them, uh, is probably the best way to describe it. So I went to college on an ROTC scholarship from the Marine Corps. Okay. So Got I it. Joined I, technically I had joined in 98. So I was uh, one of the last classes to roll through Quantico, which is where they host officer candidate school. Um, and then, so that was a summer of 2001. And then we went back to school in the fall, which was only a few weeks later. Um, of course, uh, September 11th then happened two weeks later. Mm-hmm. So we okay. were, uh, so we were already in the pipeline and, and to some extent promised to them when nine 11 happened. Um, but then by the time we graduated shortly thereafter, Afghanistan was going on and then, not many months after Afghanistan kicked off, there was, you know, rumblings or talks of maybe going to Iraq. Um, so, um, I mean, frankly, by the time we graduated, the, the country was basically fighting two wars. Yeah. And so you were already in that pipeline and, you know, I've talked to people who joined as a result of nine eleven. Yeah. Uh, actually had a friend talk me out of joining right after nine eleven. What was going through your head while you're in the middle of being in that pipeline when, 9-11 gets hit, you start seeing, you know, the, I guess you see Bush give his speech in New York, ground zero, and then you start hearing rumblings about, you know, going to war. What, what was going through your head then? Oh, interesting. Yeah. So uh, by that point, you're already somewhat into the culture. You've been inculcated to some extent. Mm-hmm. And for us, that just meant that uh, we were going to graduate and we knew we were very likely going to go somewhere. Um, so, um, I don't want to say that you, uh, you start to, you start to really think about what that means and you take your training really seriously and you do what you got to do so that you're the best you can be when you graduate and when things get serious. Got it. Um, and you were in there on LinkedIn, it shows five years. So was that, is that the equivalent of like one contract with the military? Uh, yeah. So for someone coming out of a, a scholarship or a college program, like the one I went through, it's typically a four year commitment full time. And then you might have four years you have to give where your name is just on a list. Um, and so uh, I stuck around for an extra year because I got a, a job that I wanted uh, in the you know, second half of my commitment. So I stayed, uh, I did what they call a, an extension for another year. Um, and then after that, uh, that's when I left. Um, and what's not on there is that I did stay in the reserves for another almost four years. So while I was in my first job out of the military, I was actually still in the reserves and I drilled. So I was part of a drilling unit and drilled for a couple of years and and had a uh, had a really interesting opportunity to to be a reserve commanding officer, which was a lot of uh, which was a lot, actually a lot of fun, and then a lot, a lot of work all at the same time. But <laughs> very rewarding, and uh, you know, I wouldn't change any of it. I've probably done close to 100 interviews on podcast, and well, one you you have got more degrees or learning certificates than anyone uh, I've ever interviewed or researched. Uh, is that something that you came across, meaning like somebody said, well, you need to go learn HubSpot inbound sales certification, or you need to go get your, your MS at Boston University, or is it just you're constantly seeking these opportunities to learn? 
Yeah, good question. I, I define myself as a lifelong learner, and I try to learn something new each year. Um, but remember, I was in the military, and learning is a big deal. Uh, I, was a, I was an officer. It's also important for officers to get a formal education, mm-hmm. which they stress very early on from even the beginning. So uh, I simply took advantage of opportunities that were there. You just had to, frankly, you just had to do the work. Uh, and then so some of that spilled over into life after the military, too. Uh, and then the military does a good job of making these programs available to people. Um, of course, it's difficult because you're here one minute, gone the next. But, um, you know, like learning is something that you can do anywhere um, and in different formats. Uh, so uh, that's a I would call it a lifestyle. And it's something that I brought into my civilian life when I got out. I mean, God. these days, like I think it's really important. One of the most important skills anyone can have career wise and then just life today is to be an immersive learner, to be able to learn very quickly. The key to this is to really understand your own personal learning style. Some people are visual learners. Some people learn from reading books. Some people learn by working individually uh, on their own and getting their hands dirty. Or they're very hands-on. Some people learn, with, learn best with a, a mentor or something like an apprenticeship. So I think it's important for people today to really invest some time to understand their own learning style and their own learning model. Um, that way they can continue to reinvent themselves or re-educate themselves over time. And, and then today, like if you work in tech, there's all these different programs and platforms and certifications. Uh, we do them where they're, I mean, I do them where they're, where they're, uh, where they can be really helpful. Um, and sometimes they help your career. Sometimes they don't, but that's okay. It's uh it's the pursuit that I'm most interested in. And I'm curious. I'm generally curious about a lot of different things. Um, so uh, yeah, that's how I generally spend my time. And Chris, what kind of learner would you say that you are? Yeah, good question. So I, I know this. So my style, like I learn really well from, I learn really well from books. I learn really well from interviews with other people. And then I'm something of a visual learner too. So the way I put these things together, if I want to learn about a new topic, I'll go and read three, maybe four books on the topic I'll see if there's any interesting documentaries to watch. And then I use those things together to then go and schedule interviews with people who really know what they're doing. <laughs> that's a great idea. The documentary thing is a hack I haven't come across. That's a good one. Yeah. And, so you um, put mm-hmm. together, and then you go out and you sit down and you do some interviews with informational interviews or coffees, lunches, conversations, whatever, with people who are in the field and who know about it. And you ask them all the questions you have from the work you just did, which is watching the documentaries or reading the books, et cetera. And this plays out pretty well for me because I came up through sales and I know how to do discovery, right? So now I just, uh, I take those meetings or those interviews in a very casual format as if they were a discovery call. And I learn all kinds of things. And actually, this is what led to the education question is you're also got, you have to be, I just interviewed somebody on the podcast named Steve Steve Davis. Yeah. Um, and he is the CRO at Empira up in Boston. And he's also got a sales engineering background, which means he kind of came up more through the technical side. Yeah. Well, you've got to be the first quote unquote sales rep that I know that's a certified SQL developer or has any type of MS um, background at a graduate level. How, how did you come into, I'm going to be an engineer and then I'm going to become, you know, head of a sales department? Yeah, sure. Good question. So I would never actually say that I was a formal engineer. Um, I was interested in technology. I did get a degree in information systems, actually two of them. But uh, you don't that those degrees don't necessarily lend themselves to just being just becoming engineers. Although a lot of students do try to take that track. Uh, I went into the military as a as a communications officer. So I was basically right out of the chute 
already into like a management job or in a management capacity. So then when I got out, um, I had already developed a, a set of managerial skills that most people probably don't develop until a little bit later in their career. So I ended up almost, almost in management right away. Um, so over time, uh, like it, it's, I found it to be helpful if you're in a technical environment or you're in the technology industry to really do, to really have a, an understanding of what's happening um, with the technology. And so it, it helps me to have different conversations with people. It helps to have a, a different, uh, it gives you a different level of credibility, I think, because I can go into meetings with product people or, or engineers and I can't do their job, but I can understand more about it. I can have a more in-depth conversation about it. And then I know when to call for help. So uh, I think that uh, it's been helpful over the course of the career. Um, plus, uh, there's um, uh, when, you, uh, when you understand things at a different level, um, you know, that, that does help you build some credibility and you can probably move a little bit faster. So some of the roles that I've been in, like if you're building a brand new team or uh, the team that I was on at Google and Cloud, like we didn't have enough sales engineers to go around. There was never enough technical expertise <laughs> to go around. Mm-hmm. So the more you could teach yourself, uh, frankly, the, the more you could do or the faster you could move. And those things are all important when you're building a new team or a new organization or taking a new product to market. Um, so anyways, uh, that background's been pretty helpful. And I think it's uh, brought me some opportunities that I might not have had otherwise. Plus, like you said, there aren't a lot of CROs running around with a technical background. I mean, I think it's a, a helpful distinguishing feature. Do you think that as the definition of as the definition of a CRO evolves, do you think that that's almost going not not necessarily having to have a technical degree, but to be able to have the same level of grasp that you have? Do you think that's going to be a requirement to be a CRO in the future? I don't know if it'll necessarily be a requirement. I think a lot of this is uh, contingent on where that CRO sits in the organization and what other executives are on the team. Um, when it comes to team building, I mean, what you're really doing with a CRO is you're putting somebody in probably a direct report to the CEO role that owns and defines and maintains the revenue strategy, architects and integrates the revenue system, probably designs and launches revenue programs. You said differently, you should own the top line, you should own the revenue streams and the revenue models and achieve whatever targets are set out by the CEO and the board. So if the CRO doesn't have technical capabilities, well, then you need somebody that's working alongside the CRO who does. Chris, when you took the, this role at Rocket Dollar, looking at the CRO portion of the title, uh, did, you, did you pitch it that way as I want to take it this way or did they pitch it to you that way? Well, so I was involved from the early days. Um, mm-hmm. and I actually introduced the found, some of the founders to each other. And brought them okay. in, like as an investor was like, hey, look, you guys are talking about the same thing. Maybe there's an opportunity here for a project or a business. And, and again, one thing led to another. Uh, and so they, a small team came together. They raised some funding. I participated in that funding. Um, the CEO asked if I'd sit on the board, and then I came on board full time. And so we, the way I had thought about it is this is a business that is going to start out, probably start out direct to consumer, have an online model that works. And then look for opportunities to then scale later by taking what you've learned direct to consumer and building maybe a B2B offering or a B2B2C type of offering. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, we thought about it as a a role that was going to be somewhat complex, but was going to have to own some of the other operational uh, functions beyond just just like a sales team. And we weren't quite sure yet what the revenue model was going to look like. 
And so if you go to our website, what you'll see is that we sell a product. Uh, we sell a, a product and a service, and we price it as a subscription. Um, there aren't many other retirement accounts or retirement products out there that are sold as a subscription. Mm-hmm. You know, they're sold with some other business model. Uh, and so we had a retirement account priced with a subscription um, in the market a full 12 months before Schwab. Um, so, I mean, they were, they've probably been working on it for three years. <laughs> really it's probably longer than that. Yeah. But like, I mean, you get it. So yeah, 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 absolutely. Early on. And so not only was this a new way of delivering something that already exists, but we also had a different like revenue model, which leads into a different business model. And, you know, those two things are not the same. Um, so we, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we thought about it as a, as a role that was going to uh, have a, a, a hand in a number of different things. Chris, when I was looking at your background, it, it looked like the first acquisition you went through was with Solar Winds, and then you started doing angel investing. Were you doing angel investing before that, or it was a result of that exit? No, I, I mean, I had gotten started with it before. Okay. I'm a little more serious about it afterwards. It was something that I'd always been interested in, um, and I learned about it initially while I was working, actually, in my first job out of the military. We evaluated a lot of new technology and new concepts for um, the company that I was working for. So it was kind of like a gatekeeper. And you, so you got to know a lot of different startups and you got to learn about different founders. And then one thing leads to another. You, part of the due diligence process or the vendor selection process is you look at you know, who owns the company. Um, and so you start to learn about, frankly, angel investors. And I went to work at Google where lots of employees were angel investors. Uh, Google did a lot of acquisitions. And so you met a lot of people that were founders and had successful outcomes. So I just always found the thing to be, though I always found angel investing to be an interesting concept. And then I moved to Austin where there's a lot of them here. And I got to know people that were into that. And that was something that they did. And um, and so I met some people, uh, there's some angel active angel groups in Austin. um, And one thing led to another. And I started learning about it. It's something I'm still, of course, very interested in. Uh, And I do some of it here or there where I can, or where I have time. I don't really have a lot of time these days, but (laughs) <laughs> Chris, you, you, you mentioned that you were working with angels because you got involved with a larger company. What's the name of that company? I was working for Humana at the time. And when I read about this position originally, I mean, it basically sounds like you were working for an innovative department inside of a major, I would say, traditional company because it's in the insurance space, correct? Yeah. So Humana is uh, primarily known as an insurance company and they own businesses or subsidiaries in probably every part of the healthcare value chain. Now, there's an insurance business, there's a provider business, there's a pharmacy benefit business. Uh, so they, uh, it was an interesting place to work because you kind of saw the entire system, right? the mm-hmm. entire value chain to some extent from the side of the, of the financial intermediary or and the insurance companies basically sit in the middle of that entire, uh, entire industry, um, the payers, the providers, the, the pharmacies and the product providers. Um, so, yeah, I did work in what the company had an innovation center at the time. Um, and, you know, that's probably a result of innovation being really difficult for most big companies. So it was an interesting place to sit. Yeah, for sure. Are, are you starting to see more of those at bigger companies or you're kind of removed from that game now? I'm mostly removed from that game now because I'm in a startup of my own. But uh, there are I, I know for sure there are more now corporate venture capital teams or CVCs, corporate venture capital, than there ever has been. Okay, And so companies are now recognizing that venture and investing and paying attention to startups is probably uh, you know, something that they need to do on the 
if not in, if not a core part of the business, but at least on the periphery, so that they can remain abreast of all the changes that are happening with technology in their industry or in their sector. Chris, one of the topics I gave you ahead of time that I'm just a geek out on a lot. So I wanted to see if it still plays a role in your life. Uh, I read when you're at core software, you, you, um, did OKRs, which are objectives and key results. Um, and I pitched them a lot, uh, for CROs and, and to use for their sales teams. Usually, uh, where did, where did you learn those and do you still use them today? Yeah. So many of the modern techniques around OKRs or objectives and key results or these things used to be called management by objective or MBOs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, many of the modern techniques were uh, hatched and then sort of used and perfected at Intel and then Google. Uh, and so Google runs on OKRs. Uh, every manager and every one of their direct reports has an OKR conversation. Uh, it should be an ongoing dialogue, and most of them do manage it that way. Um, if they're done right, they solve a number of problems, uh, particularly around alignment and alignment at the top level and then throughout each team that moves on down throughout the, uh, throughout the company. And they can help facilitate communication across different teams or across functional teams. Leaders should sign up to take joint OKRs where there's space between teams. You know, you might think of that today as a, the sales and marketing SLA that HubSpot and several other companies are always talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, OKRs around those. And, and so they are also part of, but not exhaustive of performance management. So I think they're extremely important. And I don't care what you call them, whether it's goals and measurements or OKRs, <laughs> something that aligns the team or aligns the company around a couple of critical objectives. And that leads you into how you manage people and how you manage processes and how you uh, manage manage the business in general. Uh, have you have you worked directly with OKRs on a, a sales team? Uh, so sales is actually an interesting place to talk about OKRs because mm-hmm. a, a well running sales organization is going to have quotas and probably a number of other measurements already. I mean, sales is pretty darn measurable. I would argue it might be the most measurable part of the business. Um, but what I typically recommend a sales team do, obviously, every quota carrying salesperson or account exec is going to have a quota, um, but there might be some other things that you manage um, day-to-day also. And so if it's a certain number of dials or a certain number of contacts or a certain number of emails or a certain number of demos, and this should all be tied to the data that you have that shows that people that hit these intermediate goals are likely to have a better outcome with, you know, when it comes to hitting quota, you can write OKRs around those things. Got it. Where they certainly help. Like I would certainly want every sales manager to be running off a set of goals or a set of measurements and OKRs, Um, sales ops, revenue ops. Like we've got, we've totally professionalized the function of of sales, or at least we're starting to in, in companies today. So all of those different teams should be running off a set of goals. So Chris, last question before we get to the, the end, uh, you know, I've, I've been around, angel investors and VCs and CEOs and things of that nature. And and one of the things that always seems to be uh, kind of a moving target is the management of organizing a funding round. Can you give the audience a little insight into why you might go raise funds and then what it's like to organize and manage that, that round? Sure. I can give you our experience, which we've uh, at rocket dollar, we've done over the last 18 months, we raised two rounds, one a pre-seed and then one a seed. And the reason that we raised was we wanted to be able to hire some people out ahead of the growth. Uh, we also had some assumptions 
that we wanted to test out. And then two, or rather uh, the last point is that uh, we're in fintech. So there is some regulatory compliance and things that you have to bake into a, a business that you might not have in other, in, in other companies. Can, so, can you give us a, for instance, of what that might be? Yeah, sure. So we wanted to have a third party validation of like the security and the, uh, and the platform uh, and how we were handling data. Um, plus we had to bring a bank partner to the table. Uh, getting a bank partner was a lot easier because we had a third party validation of the technology. And did y'all have any revenue beforehand or you really went after pure seed? So we started selling right away. Okay. The first, I guess the first instance, if you want to call it of the product was basically just a kind of just a manual process or a manual product, but we put it up online and said, call us. Um, And so people started calling and we were like, okay, so this is something obviously that the market wants. Um, And then we started started in on building the product so that we could do most of it digitally. Okay. But the lessons from this, uh, so a couple of things that stand out right away. One, it's going to take longer than you think. Um, so whatever you think your timeline is, add 30% of the minimum. And then you need to be very deliberate about the professional investors that you reach out to. So the cadence and then in what order you reach out to them to. So if you have some dream investors, you might not go to them first. You might go to some other firms first. Um, and get some feedback. Of course, the people that you're pitching first might not know that, um, but um, that's okay. Uh, And then you're going to want to reference check any professional investor. So if a VC firm or a seed fund or a seed firm is handing you a term sheet, you should do some homework on who they are and who else do they work with and what has been the experience that the other people that have raised from them have had. So the other founders that have raised from that same group, what's their experience been like? I think angels and angel groups are a great way to get started. Um, I would actually recommend most companies start there. You can find angels that specialize in specific sectors. Like we, we've met now some angels who like to start out with, or like FinTech. And so they have an affinity for it. Um, and those are great investors to call and to try to get a hold of and see if you can invest with them. And then one of the other things that we learned being here in Texas, and this might be different here in Texas than in other parts of the country, but family offices can be great. And they're often overlooked. Uh, their investing timeline is generally multi-generational, mm-hmm. which a very different timeline than a fund with a 10-year life cycle, which can result in a family office making different decisions. So they've got just a different model. They've got a different way of operating, a different MO, if you will. And so we- Chris, how do you, I'm sorry to interrupt. I know with like angel investing, there's several, like they have like one seed and angel list, but how do you go about finding the family office contacts? Is that why it's less utilized? I think that's why it's less u- utilized, yes. Um, but our angels actually led us to family offices. Okay. Okay. Just like a salesperson is going to go out and look for referrals. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a fundraiser or you're an entrepreneur or you're a CEO or an, a founder, um, you too are a salesperson. You just may not know it. Mm-hmm. And so what you're, uh, what you're selling is your dream, your vision, your plan. Uh, and every investor meeting should end with, and anyone else you think I should talk to? Uh, <laughs> like that. And if somebody's going to invest in you, so if you've sold someone, um, they're probably very interested in taking you to other investors that they typically work with, or maybe they syndicate with other investors. Uh, and then, you know, one thing led to another uh, And one of the uh, accelerators that we worked with also had some relationships that they brought to the table. Um, so yeah, where it's not the easiest thing in the world to do, but it is doable. And I think people should try to find family offices that they can reach out to uh, where your product might meet, you know, what it is they like to invest in. And, and Chris, this is just a little detail that often gets overlooked in the explanation is 
the term sheet. So for instance, if you know you have to raise a million dollars for a seed round, do are you basically going to a family office and saying, can I, um, you wouldn't say it this way, but can I put you down for 250,000 of the million, um, right? Or are you always looking to get that full amount? Well, that's a question you ask them. Got it. If they'll take a meeting with you, typically they'll also tell you what they like to invest in and how they like to invest. And those are questions that you can ask once you've once you've got a meeting or you're in the room. Got it. And then essentially the term sheet is, you know, you've kind of verbally agreed on that offer and it just lays out, this is how long the investment is and how much, et cetera. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And so if, uh, if you have a lead, typically uh, if there's a lead investor, typically the lead will, well, lead, right. And they take, <laughs> they sit down with you and discuss what terms we're going to put in the term sheet. And then this is what we're going to take to all the other investors. Um, and so with the family offices, uh, we just discussed with them what our intent was, what our plan was, what we wanted to raise at, why we wanted to raise at that valuation and how much we were looking for. And, you know, are you interested in participating or not? And some of them were. Uh, and so in some cases, they came back with their own terms or uh, they accepted the terms that we had put forward. Yeah, just like you would tailor a sales pitch. Like today, like there's nothing worse than sitting down and getting a sales pitch that you know has been like sanitized for literally everyone. <laughs> Yeah, those damn marketing departments. It's all, well, <laughs> I, I would blame the sales department too. So, you know, the account executive should sit down and say, what do I know about this business? What problems do they have? Um, and I mean, the ultimate pitch for any product or any service is solving a major problem that's going to help somebody. And if it's a B2B scenario, I'm going to help you get promoted because you're going to buy this product and here's how. Mm -hmm. Or in a consumer, like I'm going to give you value that's way above and beyond anything you could possibly imagine for what you're going to pay. All right, Chris, I know we're up against time. I appreciate you staying over a bit. Um, last part of this call, quick hit Q and a, uh, it's meant to be quick answers, but feel free to, uh, go long if you need to. Yeah, sure. Um, what's a blind spot that you had in your twenties that you clearly see now? Yeah, connections, uh, who you know matters, uh, unbelievably so. I mean, and it's also getting easier these days to get a hold of anybody that you don't know or that you need to know, uh, you know, with social media and, and other technologies. Now, that stuff, uh, I wanted to believe, I guess, in my 20s that the world was this meritocracy. Uh, <laughs> to some extent, like, that's a part of it, right? But let's get real. Who you know matters. Uh, and the mm -hmm. sooner people accept that, uh, I think the faster you can start to bring relationships to, you know, to bear and to work for you. And then you can help other people at the same time. There was a really good book called Never Eat Alone. Mm -hmm. by, uh, Keith Ferrazzi. Keith Ferrazzi. Um, and for whatever reason, I needed, me personally, I just needed to read that book. Because in that book, he makes this abundantly clear. And he even talks about it as the links. It's not the, uh, the golf course and the links. Like people, you, you think links, you know, well, that's a nickname for a golf course. Well, no, the links are the connections between the people. Mm -hmm. uh, and they help each other. They help, they invest in each other's ideas. They share their ideas with each other. They help each other's kids get the best internships, which leads, which lead to the best jobs and get into the best schools, et cetera. I mean, nobody wants to admit it, but that's really an important concept. And I mean, to some extent, that's how the world works. Right. Um, and so I would think that, I think that for me, that was a blind spot that I didn't see uh, and I didn't want to accept. And then for some reason, when I read that book, suddenly it just clicked. Yeah, I, uh, I I don't I don't want to take away from your answer. I just I agree with you on the part about nobody wants to admit it. I, th I think it's more that we're so it's so ingrained in us that people don't realize it's happening. That's right. 
Yeah, it's um, almost as if there's a game being played all around you and you don't even know it's being played. Exactly. You have to know uh, about the game so that you can start playing the game so that you can get good at it. And, and frankly, I, I think that for a lot of people who grow up maybe either grow up poor or grow up in the middle class or the lower middle class or in a working class neighborhood, like you just don't really see this stuff. You don't even know that it's a thing. Yeah, and I would also say on the other end of that, the people who are highly entitled that have to go out into their own, they don't recognize the value of it until it's gone. I've seen that before as well. Yeah, I would agree with that completely. Um, okay, Chris, you, um, you've lived in like four or five different spots east of the Mississippi and a couple of continents. What's your uh, favorite sports teams? Oh, sports teams. Uh, you know, I, I'm a big college sports fan. Uh, and I root for the Tar Heels because I went to school at North Carolina. Uh, it was the first school I had gone to, like when they were the real big sports program that's kind of like well known. And uh-huh. so I, I actually loved it. Um, one of the best nights of my life was going to a game that was Duke Carolina at the uh, at UNC um, in the Dean Dome, and it was just a it's just a fabulous experience. Something I wouldn't trade for literally anything. How um, many times did you get to go? So I only went to a Duke Carolina game once while I was a student. Um, Got it. Are they hard to get? What's the process for the student tickets there? Well, yeah. So I actually, uh, I had a friend who was in uh, my graduate program who had season tickets. And if it wasn't for that, there would have been no way that I would have ever gotten tickets to a game like that. No way. Gotcha. Um, Chris, what's, uh, what's your favorite mobile app? Favorite mobile app? Yeah. So I, I use Google Keep, which keeps me organized. And, you know, I've got a lot going on. I wouldn't say I'm busy, but I have a lot going on. And so I'm in the app all day, taking notes, writing down things, little reminders, to-do lists, to-don't lists, et cetera. So <laughs> I literally just switched from Evernote to Google Keep. I'm loving it. So. Yeah. And I used Evernote for years and I still use it. I've got an archive in there that I probably reference at least weekly, but I started using Google Keep and we run the company on G Suite. All my personal stuff is in Google. So it just makes life easy. Uh, if you were uh, coming coming out of a tunnel at the Dean Dome, what would your intro music be? Oh, funny. Uh, <laughs> probably. Yeah, look, I grew up in New York, um, 80s, 90s, so living on a prayer. Bon Jovi, probably. <laughs> Got it. Um, speaking of Times Square, if you could write one thing on a billboard there, what would it be? So we put Rocket Dollar up there on the NASDAQ Tower about a week ago. So my nice. Up there staring at a, you know, like kind of a milestone. It's actually worth looking at. It's pretty cool. So I, I would be selfish and I would put something about the company up there. Uh, Chris, what's your favorite word? Probably the F word. <laughs> what's, what's your least favorite word? Uh, my least favorite word. Um, mm. Probably moist. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, what's a sound? What's a sound or noise that you love? Sound or a noise? Uh, my dog. My dog. I actually like it even when the dog barks. My dog makes a really has a really unique sort of bark and tone to them and it's it's actually it's it's lovely what kind of dog is it it's a shih tzu oh really okay tiny little tiny little shih tzu we live in a we we live in a a condo so it's not an enormous place and i don't have a big yard although there's a little space around it um i don't like i don't like doing yard work so (laughs) we chose not to buy a a house or sort of single family home with a yard Uh, so we have a dog that suits our lifestyle are you in downtown Austin? I live just outside downtown uh, in an area called uh, the Northwest Hills. 
Okay. Uh, I remember the first time I went to Austin, it was 2008 South by Southwest. And since then, yeah. it's just been insane. Yeah, it's uh, it's changed dramatically in the time I've been here. Like, yeah. Um, Chris, what what is a profession other than your own that you would like to attempt? I think I'd want to teach college. And what's one that you would not like to do? I would not want to be an elected official or a politician today. Uh, last question. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Well, I was in the Marine Corps, so I think he's going to say, take a post. <laughs> what's he going to say? Take a post. Or we have a post ready for you. Got it. <laughs> Chris Palmazano, thanks so much for joining me on the CRO Gumbo podcast. If somebody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, Chris at rocketdollar.com. Email is probably best, although I'm on all the socials, so you can find me there too. Cool. Thanks so much, Chris. You got it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to CRO Gumbo. If you are a CRO or an executive leader at the intersection of sales, marketing, and customer service, and want to innovate around your existing revenue processes, or if you want to find some places where some lost revenue may be occurring, feel free to text us for more information on how we can help you. Text CRO to 555 that's C-R-O-555-888. Now go innovate.